This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Okay, it's very good to see all of you here today. Difficult passage today to apply especially, so let's go ask God to help us to understand and to apply it to our hearts. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray for your word that it may speak powerfully for indeed we recognize that we do fail in many of these areas. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, let me ask you uh, three quick questions, right? So are you a proud Christian, right? Like someone who wants to be great as a Christian. Are you an unwelcoming Christian, someone who's not a very welcoming person? Or are you, most difficultly of all probably, an unforgiving Christian? Uh, The reason why I ask these three questions is because I think today's passage deals with these three main areas. But if you are a proud Christian, or an unwelcoming Christian, or an unforgiving Christian, then the Bible actually tells you that you are in great great danger. Now you might say to yourself, well, you know, usually we think as murder or sexual sin as something which is very serious. And as long as I believe and follow Jesus as my Lord and Savior, as long as I authentically and sincerely follow Jesus, I should be alright. But the surprising, shocking thing that the Bible tells us today is that you are not alright. So today we begin uh, with this significant passage here about uh, a series of conversations that Jesus had with his disciples. But I think that these conversations began and were occasioned by what happened last week. So if you remember last week, something really significant happened in that uh, Jesus went up to the mountain and he was transfigured. Right? Remember, he was metamorphosized. He was transformed into his inner reality. He showed himself to be divine. To be God in every way. So we already knew in the early part of Matthew that Jesus was uh, Christ, God, Savior. But last week it really came out, shone through, that Jesus was God in every way. But what happened last week? Who went up and witnessed this transfiguration? Uh, It wasn't all the disciples, right? It was really only three of them. There was only Peter, James and John who went up to the top of the mountain with Jesus. And I think that's where the, the, the question of verse 1 comes about. Because I think that there is this rivalry, this jockeying for power and position and greatness, this pride and status that's coming through. Right? So at the lead, there's Peter, James and John and all the other disciples are sort of saying, hey, how come it's so unfair? Right? Because I didn't get to the to go to the top of the mountain to see Jesus being transfigured. I was sort of left at, left at the bottom and I got scolded by Jesus when he came back down later anyway. So that's what happens in chapter 18. I think at that time, right, in verse 1 of chapter 18, it refers back to this occasion. And I think the disciples then came to Jesus and wanted to clarify with Jesus, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And they wanted to know uh, who really had 
the inner circle, who is it, the, within the inner circle of Jesus, who is going to sit at his right hand, and who is going to be at his left hand. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 2, He called the little child to him, and placed the child among them, and he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Now, I think this is very radical because Jesus takes a child, he uses a child as a metaphor for the kingdom person. And you know, a child like, okay, we had lots of children just run out straight after this, right? Just before this. What are children like, or little toddlers like? Uh, you could say they were innocent, some of them are pure, even though some of them are quite rowdy, right? as you could see with the people sitting next to me, some of them, right? Quite rowdy, not singing, but okay. But what is it about little children that, that Jesus is, is using to, to say we should be? He says there that we should be humble, right? We should take the lowly position of this child. And that's what Christians must be. Christians must be like little toddlers, little children, in the way that we perceive ourselves. When I was growing up, I think maybe this is my mum with her olden day values, right? She used to say to me many times, right, ringing in my ears, little children should be seen but not heard, right? So my mum used to tell that to me all the time, right? Little children should be seen, not heard. You know, and I think maybe today we don't have the attitude, but in those days, and especially in the ancient world, the status of little children is that you are like, supposed to be seen but not heard, right? You, you don't have any power, money, influence, status, right? You should just be there and keep quiet. Now, that's the way we see ourselves as Christians, right? We, we see ourselves as lowly before God. We are not seeking greatness before God. In the same way, like when you see little children, toddlers, right, playing, they are unconcerned about social status. Right? I mean, they don't care about whether who your parents are, how rich they are, whether they're wearing what's a very expensive uh, children's clothes or not, right? They just, they're just unconcerned about these things. Little toddlers are not bothered by these things. They're just playing among themselves. So I remember uh, about two weeks ago, I was taking the bus, as usual, from... Uh, from Beauty World back to my house. And then <clears throat> it was around after lunchtime, so all these school kids were with me, and some of them were a little bit older, and there was this really interesting conversation which was happening right next to me. Right? So there was this boy telling his schoolmate, Hey, you know, my dad has four cars. One is a Rolls Royce, and the other one is a Ferrari. And then, I, I know, how many cars does your dad have? Then I was like thinking to myself, are you, are you sure or not? First of all, if your dad has four cars, one of which is a Rolls Royce, another is a Ferrari, what are you doing taking the bus? And the second thing is, what are you doing living in Hillview with me, right? So, but, but my point is that it's only when you get older that you're concerned about these things. I mean, little toddlers, they don't, they don't care what car you're driving and what their clothes they're wearing. And that's what Jesus is saying, that as a, as a Christian, we are not concerned with greatness. We're not concerned with ambition or status as Christians. 
But the sad thing is there are many Christians who are concerned with greatness. Right? There are Christians who are concerned about ambition and being proud. Uh, I've been to many meetings before with Christians where in the outside world, there may be people who are very successful businessmen, doctors, lawyers, whatever. But the problem is they then bring the attitude in as Christians and they seek greatness within the Christian community. They, they are proud Christians. But if you read very carefully in the slide, I think I put the slide up here, right? Jesus says very clearly, right? To the disciples, truly I tell you, unless you change, when you become a Christian, you need to change your worldly attitude of seeking greatness, pride, status, and ambition, and become in the way that you view yourself like a little child. Unconcerned about ambition, status, and pride. You need to be humble like a child. And the shocking thing is, Jesus says, unless unless you change and become like the little children that you are, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's really shocking, right? It's almost like saying to people, unless you humble yourself in the way you see yourself, in the way you see other people, don't bother coming to church because you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so many Christians need to hear this because in my experience, I've met so many proud Christians who just seek status and glory and ambition within the Christian community. Now, Jesus then goes on in verse 5, right? And he says, And everyone welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. So first thing we learn here is why is it as Christians we cannot be proud or arrogant or, or status-seeking? Because who are the little ones? Well, it says here, those who are the little ones are Christians who believe in me. So if the way that we are saved, if the way that we are actually entering into the kingdom of heaven is because we believe in Jesus, then what is there to be proud about? It's not as if we ourselves deserve kingdom of heaven. It's because we believe only in Jesus Christ. But I think it's more than right, right? Because in Matthew chapter 11, in the next slide, <coughs> I think it's the next slide, is it there? Oh yeah, the next slide. It actually says, And at the time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, this was your good pleasure. Now, we don't have all day to spend on this, but it's very clear that even the revelation of Jesus to us, of his true identity, the ability to have faith, does not come from ourselves. We cannot say, well, I'm very proud of myself and Andrew, 
I'm so smart that I decided to have faith in Jesus. No, we can't say that. The fact is God himself reveals Jesus to us and allows us to have faith in Jesus. So how then can we be great? How then can we be good or powerful or have status in the kingdom of heaven? We are just like little children dependent on God even for his revelation for who Jesus is. But the great danger that Jesus warns of here is not just the status-seeking, the greatness-seeking, or the pride. The danger is when we view people in that way, we stumble other little ones. Now the word here, stumble, if you see the next slide, right, has been used many times before. Right? It's the idea of offending people or causing them to fall away as Christians or causing them to sin. That's what it says there in the translation, right? And you can imagine that happening, right? So if I'm, uh, this is very unfortunate, I've heard this in other churches, I've seen this in my own eyes in some churches, where if I come to church and I'm a rich, powerful person, and there's another Christian there who is, you know, maybe not so respectable, so to speak, or maybe they're poor, and I disrespect them and make them feel unwelcome, and they end up leaving the church, then Jesus says, I've scandalized them, I've stumbled them, I've made them fall away as Christians, and it's better for me to have a big millstone put around my neck and thrown into the deeper sea because God is going to judge me in hell. So a millstone, if you look at the next slide, is uh, what they grind the grain with to make fine flour in order to make bread. Right? So obviously you need a very heavy stone on another heavy stone. Right? So next slide. So imagine that being tied around your neck and, th- and having you thrown into the deepest ocean. Right? Well, Jesus says, if you stumble the little ones who believe in Jesus, this fate is better for you because actually the reality is that you will actually be thrown into eternal fire for what you have done. Now I want us to reflect on that for a second, right? Because... That is how serious it is if we stumble the little ones who believe in Jesus. And we're not talking about little children, right? We're talking about just genuine Christian believers. If we are proud or we look down on them or we think they're not good enough, then if we cause them to sin and stumble, Jesus actually says that you are destined for fire of hell. How serious is that? But it's very real, I think, unfortunately. Um, in our midst, I mean, we've had many helping hand brothers who've come through over the years and, you know, it's unfortunate sometimes I see that people are not so friendly to them. I remember when I was in Australia, I, had, I was in a church where there were refugees, Christian refugees who used to come through the congregation once in a while. Or maybe there were people who were single mothers or there were people with lots of tattoos. Maybe there were gangsters before or drug addicts. And it was very unfortunate because I saw Christians who gave them the cold shoulder. You know, but Jesus says that if you cause any one of these people who are genuine Christians who believe in Jesus to stumble, then you yourself may be destined to go to hell. Now, it means then that just because someone societally may not be that impressive, maybe they're a single mother, or they're poor, or they were an ex-drug addict, or maybe they 
struggled with something before, or they're like refugees. We should not be stumbling them because in the eyes of God, they are very valuable. So I remember this cartoon, right? Which I scanned many years ago about how, you know, we think that we are very friendly as Christians, but sometimes we are friendly only to the people who are like us. You know, you know, like sometimes I remember one of my pastor friends told me, like there are all these cliques in the church, right? We're all really friendly, but we're only friendly with people like ourselves. But actually, what Jesus is saying here is that we need to welcome all of the little ones, right? Now the word here, welcome, literally means in its Greek, to be receiving into your midst or, or, or giving hospitality to someone like an honored guest. That's the way, you know, welcome is not like, oh, hello, okay, how's your day? Okay, that's good, right? It really means like you welcome someone genuinely, like an honored guest, into your house. And that's what Jesus is really saying. That's what we must do. Not to stumble people or scandalize them, but to welcome them like an honored guest into your house and to make them feel truly and sincerely, genuinely welcome. Now, verse 10 to 14, uh, we are given the reason why it's such a serious sin uh, to actually stumble the little ones. So in verse 10 it says, See that you do not despise or look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Now what does that mean, right? I mean, does that mean that each of us have like a little angel up in heaven, you know, talking to God? Like, you know, there's an Andrew angel up there. Actually, there are a lot of Andrew angels, right, up there. And there are some other angels up there with, with, with God. No, I don't think so, right? Because actually in Matthew chapter 22, I think the more reasonable explanation is that actually, he's saying that, you know, when we die, we are like angels in heaven. So, in this world, in this time, in this age, this person, this person who is you know, not respected in the world, but is a little one in Christ, when they die, they are actually in the presence of God himself. So how then can we look down on this person when actually their eternal destination is to be with God in eternity in perfect relationship? Right, so we shouldn't be looking at this person and looking down on this person and stumbling them. But then Jesus then uses a parable about a, a, a farmer with a hundred sheep and who loses one. And it's a very common illustration. Right? It's not a supernatural illustration. It's something which happens all the time. If you have a hundred sheep, then at some point in time, you'll find one sheep missing and you go and look for that sheep. I mean, you won't say, ah, well, I've got 100, I've still got 99 left. Let's just leave the sheep behind, right? You go and look for it. And when you actually find that sheep, you will rejoice over that sheep that you lost. That's just natural human nature. That's the way we are, right? I remember, okay, I don't have 100 sheep. But I remember when I was younger, I used to have a comic collection, right? So you know your comic collection are kind of like all numbered, right? You're very proud. Now I've got, wow, this sequence. You know, then you go through it, and then you go, hey, I lost number... 35, right? Like, even though number 35 was a really lousy addition, you think, I must find number 35, right? So you, you throw the whole house upside down, you find number 35. 
And you rejoice that you fact that you found number 35 even though you, you, know, you haven't read it for ages anyway. But if we are like that, we, we want to keep the things that we have, then how much more God? Because God, it says here, does not want to lose the sheep that he already has. And if you are the cause of that sheep being lost, then how much will God treat you? How much this displeasure will God show you? So the summary of what he's saying is here is welcome the little ones in Christ, who believe in Christ. Don't stumble them. Don't look down on them because you think that you're, not, you're so holy or look down on them because some way in society they are not as successful as you or somehow society looks down on them because we welcome the ones in Christ. Because it says there, look, verse 5, right? Whoever welcomes one child in my name welcomes me. Their value comes because they believe in Jesus Christ. So welcome them as you would Jesus Christ. Now verse 15 uh, to 20 now reflects upon uh, the person who sins in the church. Actually, it could be a personal sin. Because if you look at the footnote of your Bible, verse 15 says, sins against you, right? So, it could be that this person in church stumbled you or scandalized you or it could be just a general sin. You see someone in church sinning. Now, this is a very difficult passage because we find church discipline to be a very dirty word, right? We think of it like the Inquisition or something, right? You know? But it's not the Inquisition because actually it's for our good. So let's read this section. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have warned them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. If they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. So here, it kind of like looks at it from the other side of the picture, right? You know, the, the, the earlier section talks about you not stumbling other people or sinning against other people. Now, you are the person who witnesses sin, possibly against yourself. So what should you do? The first thing you should do is to try to go one-to-one and talk to that person, but not to like, you know, score points or to, you know, uh, to tell them you know, what a terrible people you, they are, or scold them or abuse them, but it says there to win them over, right? To win them over. So the first reason to speak to that person one-to-one is for them to be rehabilitated, to be repenting. You know, we should be going there and saying, hey, you know, the way you're acting now, you're in danger of hell. And therefore, you need to change. And if that person is worn over, then praise God, right? Because they are saved in Christ. But if they fail to respond, then you're supposed to take two or three other people along 
and to involve other people so that maybe they may listen to other people. But if they refuse to listen, then the aim is no longer to re- for repentance or rehabilitation, but it's more judicial. The two or three people now become witnesses of this person's unwillingness to change. Now, verse 18 to 20 are the key, right? Because it says there that truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Now, if you notice, this is exactly the promise that Jesus made to Peter as the rock. Right? So, Peter's not the only one with the ability to lose things on earth and, and lose things in heaven and bind things on earth and bind things in heaven. So what it's really saying is, oh, it's not as if you and I have this ability where we come together and we think, ah, you know, we don't really like that person. Let's kick him out of the church, right? And then it will, it will happen that they're kicked out of heaven as well, right? It doesn't work that way. What's really happening is, as we apply or as the disciples apply the standards of Jesus' words, they were reflecting the reality of the church, which was the reality of heaven. So as much as possible, right, the church needs to, almost as, as faithfully as it can, reflect who will actually go to heaven at the last day. Because it is very unloving if we, we allow someone who is unrepentantly sinning to keep coming to church and to not make them feel that they're actually outside the community of believers, if we know that the person is sitting and is actually going to hell, right? Because that person will then get the wrong idea and think, well, you know, I'm coming to church regularly, everybody accepts me. Must be that I'm in the community of believers. It must be that I'm in the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus actually says here very clearly, no. If a person, based on God's word based on the judgment and the wisdom of other believers says, look, this person is unrepentantly sinning and they're not changing, then you must give them the cold shoulder in effect, right? You must treat them like a tax collector or pagan and make them realize that actually they're outside the community of believers because that is the reality of the last day when they die. Now, this is a very, very hard word to speak today because... I think in many times when we go to church, we don't come to church with the view of being disciples of Christ. But many churches teach that we are more like consumers going to, to, to receive some sort of service. Right? So if I'm a consumer, then the last thing I want is discipline. Right? So I was reading this article in the Straits Times about how you know, universities today, should they see the students as students or consumers? Right? Because you know, if I'm a consumer, then... As a lecturer, the way you treat me is different than if you're my teacher, right? But actually, this is a very important point. Because I remember when I was in Australia, I visited a church. And uh, we were talking to people. We were on a mission trip. And the worship leader at the front, she was actually taking drugs. And then there was a musician who was actually sleeping around with someone else in the congregation. So we were sort of saying, hey, how can you let these people first of all, serve at the front of the church, and secondly, what are they doing still like, actively being in church? And then the, 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 the church people will say, ah, well, it doesn't matter as long as we keep loving them, keep ministering to them. That's very important. 
But that's actually going against what this passage is saying. Because if I'm coming to church and I'm sitting willfully and the church is accepting me for who I am, then you're actually telling me that I'm okay, right? That if I die today, I will still go to heaven, right? That Jesus is forgiving me. But actually, that's not the passage, what the passage is saying. The passage is saying, if you see someone in sin, the loving thing to do is to approach a person, warn them, caution them. If the church sees that this person is not repentant, to keep warning them as well. Because the reality of their sin actually excludes them from salvation in heaven. And by actually excluding them from the church, you're actually warning them and helping them to take serious the sin in their life. Now the last part probably is the most difficult part of the whole passage. Right? Now Peter, uh, you know, he always talks a lot, right? he's a talkative disciple, right? comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus in verse 21, How many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Now, the rabbis used to teach that you had to forgive people who sinned against you up to three times. So, you know, I think when Peter came up to Jesus, he was like, kind of like being, hey, you know, see how big-hearted I am. I, I'm forgiving them seven times, right? But little did he expect Jesus to then say, not seven times, but 77 times. Now, I don't think Jesus was saying, you know, you get one of those clickers, right? And you keep clicking it until finally I reach 78. Okay, that's it. That's it. I've had enough. Right? I'm not going to forgive you anymore. Right? I don't think Jesus is saying that. Jesus is saying that, that the forgiveness that we show people is like an unlimited forgiveness. Now, I want to say that this is hard teaching. If you've ever been hurt by people before, this is really hard teaching. Uh, I've spoken to people who've been hurt you know, very grievously. Right? Maybe they've been sexually abused or they've been cheated of, you know, of great things. And when you read this passage, you think, how can you forgive somebody who's done such a grievous wrong to me? Jesus gives uh, what is a very, very startling parable. Right? Therefore, in verse 23, says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. Okay. So he, you know, we haven't had one of these the, the parables for a long time, right? Because, you know, earlier on there was this whole series of parables about the kingdom of heaven being like something. So he says, the kingdom of heaven is like this king. And he has a servant who owes him 10,000 talents. I don't like the new translation here. It says, you know, 10,000 bags of gold. It's like, what's 10,000 bags of gold? Small bags, big bags, who knows, right? But 10,000 talents we can understand. 10,000 talents was how much King David contributed to build the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, so when you talk about 10,000 talents, we are talking about national wealth. Right? So when the servant says, I will pay you back everything, please be patient with me, he begged him, right? In verse 26, you know that is not possible because... A servant cannot pay back a national debt. Right? It's almost like saying, hey, I, know, I, can pay, I can pay for the debt of Venezuela or something. It's just, it's just impossible. But what is really amazing and really shocking to the hearer, and I think it doesn't shock us as much, is that in verse 27, 
the servant's master took pity on him and cancelled the debt and let him go. It is shocking because, you know, if somebody owes me a few bucks, right? Let's say I go to lunch and then uh, I pay for someone's chakotiao and they say, ah, okay, I'll pay you back. Even the most expensive chakotiao, $8, right? If they forget, okay, lah. It's only $8, right? Now, if I lend someone $800,000, $8 million, right? $80 million, right? I mean, you just don't forgive that sort of debt. I mean, that's just inconceivable. Who, who forgives that, that, that level of debt, right? I mean, $8, yeah, but not like $80 million, right? So, the, 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 the point I think that Jesus is making here is that the number itself shows this huge number that is being forgiven. But then the servant goes out and then he bumps into another servant who owes him 100 silver coins, right? So, okay, if you look down in the footnotes, it's, it's 100 denarii. Okay? So, if you look up here, the comparison between 10,000 talents and 100 denarii is like 60,000 denarii, or 60 million, sorry, denarii compared to 100, right? So, the the, 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 the quantums of the comparative debts is like huge to like insignificant. Now both this servant and the other servant both beg for the same thing. If you notice, the, the, if you look at your text, huh, both of them do the same thing. In verse 29 and verse 26, they say the same thing. His fellow servant fell to his knees, begged him, be patient to me and I will pay it back. Now I think it's deliberate, right? It's deliberate that it's the same action, the same language, but the reactions are completely different, right? Where the servant's master, the king, took pity on him and cancelled the debt and let him go, this servant, the forgiven servant, chokes the guy, right? He grabs him by the neck, he chokes him, he throws him in prison until he could pay his debt. Now, the king finds out about it, the master finds out about it, and then here's the punchline, right? Verse 32 to 35. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now these are hard, hard words, right? But what Jesus is essentially saying through the parable is unless you forgive, you are wicked because you fail to appreciate the forgiveness God has shown you. But the shocking thing is that if you fail to forgive from your heart, then God himself will judge you and take away the forgiveness that you have already received. Now I know this is really hard, right? I mean, it's not easy to forgive. Forgiveness is a very difficult thing. But the words of Jesus are very clear. The failure to forgive is a very, very serious thing. 
sincere forgiveness from your heart. It doesn't come because of, you know, I'm just a forgiving sort of person. But it comes because we recognize the forgiveness that we have received from God. Now, I want you to bear with me just a second. I want you to use your minds because this is one of the questions which you should have come up with when you did your Bible study. But some people ask, well, if you look at the text properly, do we only forgive when the person asks for forgiveness? Because you know, if you look at the parable, it's because they begged the debtor and said, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I will pay back everything, right? Then you forgive. So does that mean then that we only forgive when the people ask us for forgiveness or when they repent? Well, I think the context of the parable seems to suggest so. But also in the book of Luke, right? If you look here in Luke chapter 17, it's the parable, sorry, not a parable, the parallel section to Matthew chapter 18. Right? You, see, you notice it's exactly the same. Okay? It's just that there's no parable. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. Sounds very familiar, right? That's what we studied earlier. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, then seven times comes back to say it and says, I repent, forgive him. So some people say, well, we only forgive when people repent. But on the other hand, in the Sermon on the Mount, which we just read in our responsive reading, it doesn't seem as if, uh, the next slide, uh, the idea of repentance is actually there. It's actually a unilateral forgiveness. I forgive you as I have received forgiveness from God the Father. So I think that actually, in order to summarize everything, and you can come and ask me about it later, I feel, forgive, I feel that there is a difference between reconciliation and forgiveness. So if people repent and say sorry to us, the Bible says that we should forgive them from our hearts. We should be trying to be reconciled to them. But at the same time, if someone says someone abuses me physically or something like that, seriously, even if they don't repent, or let's say Hitler killed my family, right? Even if Hitler doesn't repent and he's dead, he can't repent. I can still choose to forgive because I've received forgiveness from God Himself. Now this is a very hard word, but I still think that the idea of forgiveness you know, is very important for us as Christians. Because as we receive forgiveness from God, then we must forgive others. So in conclusion, you know, you often think of the seven deadly sins, right? It's a very Catholic understanding. You know, have you heard the seven deadly sins? You know, like gluttony, you know, pride, all this sort of stuff. You know, these are the seven deadly sins, right? But we never think of the deadly sins that we studied today, right? Do we think that if you are a proud Christian, some Christian who seeks greatness, that is a deadly sin? I don't think so, right? But the Bible says it's a deadly sin. Do we think that stumbling other Christians is a deadly sin? No, we don't really think of it that way. Right? We give the cold shoulder to other Christians who we think are not as good as us. We don't think that's a deadly sin. 
the unwillingness to forgive, we don't see as a deadly sin as well. But if we understand today's passage rightly, these are all deadly sins. So if you are in danger of any of these sins, then I would like to implore you to really reflect on what Matthew chapter 18 is saying and take to heart what it's saying and to not, as a Christian, seek greatness and be proud to actually welcome the little ones who believe in Jesus and to forgive others as you have been forgiven a lot, greatly, uh, magnificently by God himself. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come to you today, Help us to see the seriousness of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18. If we want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, if we are proud and we despise and look down on other Christians, help us to see that there is no place for us in the kingdom of heaven. Help us to see too, if we fail to welcome the little ones who believe in you, we are actually rejecting you you as well, you alone. And again, better for us to have a millstone tied around our neck and thrown into the deepest ocean for our destiny is hell as well. Help us realize as well that the failure to forgive is very serious. We know that each and every one of us struggle to forgive. Some of us may have had great wrongs done against us and find it impossible to forgive. Dear Father, help us to fix our, li- our eyes on the death of Jesus on the cross and His great suffering to bear Your wrath in order to pay for our sins and teach us as, as we appreciate more and more the forgiveness that we have received that we will be able to forgive others as well. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.